standard hoarding. Why do I call it standard hoarding? It's standard hoarding because it meets the standard. What is the standard for hoarding? Those three criteria we just reviewed. There's, there are three subtypes under standard hoarding. Indiscriminate hoarding, those situations arise when people have an urgent, pressing, compelling need to acquire as much of everything that comes into their purview. And the more they have, the better they feel. All right? It's random. It's everything from soup to nuts. Anything that you can imagine can, can and is hoarded. That is indiscriminate hoarding. The next subtype is discriminate hoarding. It's not everything that comes into that into a person's uh, area of control. There are specific things, uh, types of things, categories of things that meet certain criteria. If you happen to be a discriminate a person who hoards discriminately would be really in your best interest to sit down and put a little time into figuring out what does have special meaning for you. What, what is that tipping point where it's just too good to miss, all right? Or even if it's not in great condition, even if you haven't used it in forever, it's just too tender to, to it, it, it holds residual value and importance and meaning for you. That's discriminatory. The third type is really hard to identify. It's combined hoarding, where this indiscriminate and discriminate meet. They overlap. Generally, this happens usually. It's not, nothing is forever or always. But generally, this happens when someone starts out to um, hoard or acquire excessively discriminately there are particular things okay or there's a time in their life when things just kind of came to a grinding halt so there's a meaning behind it and, and an understandable one and then something happens and they just can't stay on top of it and then before you know it all sorts, all manner of things that are part of everyday life start to pile on top. And before, when you're finished or when you open your eyes to it and you look at it, it looks like indiscriminate hoarding. But you know that you're not an indiscriminate hoarder, all right? If, when you start to deconstruct those piles, those, the, wherever they are, whatever they're made of, no judgment, Okay, no shame, no blame. You start to work on them and you start to, to de deconstruct them and you find commonalities. Then you know you have a combined situation. The reason that's important is approaching, handling, and dealing with your discriminant hoarding is very different. It probably comes from a different place, from indiscriminate hoarding. So the tools and strategies you need will be different and so when it's become mixed up with all leftover things <clears throat> you also know that you may be vulnerable to mood swings or side effects from medication side effects from chronic pain uh, fibromyalgia 
chronic fatigue, depression. We're going to talk about some of those comorbidities today as well. So just know that you need to keep a special eye on your ability to self-regulate and stay within a range where you don't have to wake your up one day, open your eyes and see, oh my heavens, what, what has happened and when did this happen? Okay, so that's a different kind of clue for you. The <clears throat> three pathways, this is where we're really going to get into self-assessment today. Now, I want to say something before we start. This self-assessment is not about overloading yourself, blaming yourself, or defining yourself as some kind of in some way permanently intrinsically broken and flawed and and there's no hope that's not what this is about and please don't make it into that because what the way i want you to use this information is ah that's something that is special to me and many others but it's it's that that resonates with me and so what tools and resources rather than some random approach to this all right kind of buckshot approach to hoarding um no what do i uniquely as an individual need what are my needs what are my vulnerabilities that's all this is about every person on the face of this earth has vulnerabilities okay everybody gets something to deal with in life you me the queen of england everybody and you learn to manage it better when you don't overload yourself when you respect yourself and try to identify what are the unique components that increase your vulnerability so what do you have to do for yourself what do you have to manage for yourself and what do you have to watch out for that might be triggers to trigger that vulnerability so um, the three pathways um, the th remember, the three pathways are, number one, genetics. But that genetic pathway has two components. We know that there are certain types of hoarding um, that ha have three, basically three chromosomes in common, all right? They're markers on your, on your DNA. And does that doom you to hoarding? No, it does not. It just means that that's something you need to keep an eye on all components about learned behavior all components in your environment presently in your in your environment growing up you need to take special attention to um, so we also know there's a fourth chromosome uh, johns hopkins university did um, a, a collaborative study where they found a fourth chromosome chromosome 14 um, and that chromosome exists when there's a familial pattern of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Not the worst thing to have, but important to know if you are on that continuum so that you can deal with it. Combined with the chromosomal genetic pattern is learned behavior, all right? Modeling behavior within a family. So, what kind of rules? This is homework for you. Write this down, okay? If this resonates with you. What were the rules in your family growing up? The rules. 
thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not waste, thou shalt not do other things. All right. Different from the rules, what were the families that you were inculcated with, family uh, values that you were inculcated with? Huh? What does your family stand for? What do we do? We don't do that. That's that message growing up. We don't do that. In our family, we don't do that. Some of those may still be applicable. Many may still be applicable in today's life. But many, their value, their um, appropriateness, that time passed. You're at a different time in your life. You're in different circumstances. The world is a slightly different place. You have certain strengths to offer. You have certain vulnerabilities to consider. Are those values, beliefs, are they still appropriate to today's life? You don't stop being a member of that family. Nobody start, stops loving you and appreciating you and valuing you as much. It's just it either works for you as an individual or it doesn't. All right. What were your parental values? All right. What did your parents stand for? Maybe you didn't appreciate them, but maybe that is part of, I'm going to introduce you to something funny that a client taught me this week. So um, the parental values are, we're, we're going to talk about the parental values because they may be one of the voices on the committee in your mind that makes you crazy is all of the thoughts and the, oh, should, should I not? Should I, what about this? What about that? What about this? My client told me that um, she's come to feel that when she's immobilized, all right, and something, she feels like Duh, she doesn't know which way to go. Um, it's like there's a committee in her head, all right? And that, there is, it's a great name for it. So we all have a committee in our head. And the committee in our head is make up, made up of these different components that I'm talking about right now. There's a whole faction that represents the what if. Yeah, but what if? That's the insurance committee, all right? And, and they're risk managers. Then there's the you should, they're the moralists, all right? And you should do this, whether you're able to do it, whether it's appropriate or not. Should, 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 should. That's that group. All right. Then there's the other group that are afraid. <gasps> What's the worst that could happen? The worst could happen. If I do that, if I do that, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. That's the fear group. Um, they have representatives as well. And so when you're trying to make decisions about anything we're going to talk about later, I want you to think of it as a committee, add another component, not just here on, and, and sense this kinesthetically, I want you to imagine that there is a committee, okay, and you're in a committee room, you're actually sitting around a table, visualize it, make it as concrete as you possibly can, and when they all start talking at the same time, and they're talking over one another, and you feel like your head is spinning, I want you to excuse yourself from the meeting and say that you have a pressing need, all right? And But it's okay. You'll listen to them. You'll read the minutes when they come out, okay? But excuse yourself. You are an individual. You know what your tolerance level is. You cannot possibly stay on track if the committee is ruling the roost. 
They don't agree with one another. That's why you're going in a circle. Just excuse yourself from the meeting and assure them that, you know, they value, you value their opinion. You'll read the minutes. All right. So were there any other valued others? Could be teachers, could be an aunt, could be somebody who held a special uh, role in your life and you really value them and you want to emulate them. All right. That's a good thing to do. However, it has to fit for you. Are you essentially enough of the same type of person with the same strengths and the same vulnerabilities? Because they also had vulnerabilities. How similar are you to them? And are you trying to emulate values that are reasonable for you, that you have a good fit for? All right. And even if you still feel yes, if it's not working, then the question to ask yourself is not shame and blame and how deficient you are and how, what a failure you are or how you're failing. It's to say, is this the time and what other skills and strengths do I need to develop in order to be able to achieve that, that state that I respect so much about them and want to make part of my own? We often do this. Uh, this is a good thing to do when we lose people in our life, all right? To ask ourselves, what three characteristics or values about that person who I love so much and I will miss forever, um, can I make them live, continue to live through me because I respect those values, I respect those characteristics. So I keep them alive through me. The other is um, beliefs and behaviors. Um, what other beliefs are there that are hanging out there that you pick up? Maybe you've read and uh, behaviors. All right. Um, just track it down that way. Okay. So the second pathway are comorbidities. Now, comorbidities, that's just a $5 word for other existing um, conditions. You can actually, they can be mental conditions or physical conditions. Um, when I say physical conditions, things like Parkinson's and MS, at a certain point, there's a cognitive impairment that starts to happen. And so if that does start to happen, or that's part of your reality, you need to factor that in as well. Um, mental health. Um, now, I like to say, even if you don't, Part of respecting yourself, let's back up a bit. Part of respecting yourself is acknowledging what you are actually experiencing. All right. And so when you haul out the DSM 5, Diagnostic Manual of Mental Health Disorders, version 5, and you go through what are the criteria for this disorder and this disorder and this disorder, you don't need to tick enough boxes to qualify for a disorder. It doesn't have to be at that level. You can be anywhere on the functional continuum. If anything that is associated with any of these comorbidities that I'm going to list for you, 
all right, is true for you, then factor it in. You don't have to label yourself. It's not about label. It's about identifying the ways you trip over your plan, your desire for different outcomes. What's getting in the way? All right. So, and we're going to, it, I also realized as I prepared for this um, podcast today, we're going to have to do um, a podcast on probably each of these comorbidities. All right. Um, so comorbidities. Now, what I want you to keep in mind as I read them, if any of them resonate with you or they sound familiar, and you can get more information on what's involved either at the podcast where we're dealing with that or you can go online to places like um, the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, uh, Johns Hopkins University, um, and look up uh, what the characteristics of some of these are. I have three clients in the last three months who are in their 40s and 60s, all right? And they have just discovered that their whole life they've been living with undiagnosed, untreated adult ADHD. All right? And they take so many boxes, it's amazing nobody alerted them to it or that they became alerted to it. So let's give ourselves a heads up, okay? So what I want you to keep in mind as I list these is this. How severe or disruptive are the characteristics of this disorder for you and if you if you know you already live with this or you wonder like maybe i need to look up more about that um, ask yourself go back and ask yourself since what age do i have a recollection of what's being described being a factor in my life all right what are examples, actual tangible examples, not vague feelings, actual tangible um, examples of where these characteristics of this disorder um, impacted your decision making um, and possibly life goals and almost certainly then outcomes? This is not cast in stone. If you are still alive and breathing, you can change the track. Good information, accurate information is the first step. If you can imagine it, you can do it. All right. So the first, there, there's a list here. Believe me, there's 17. All right. Depression. It isn't just the depression that can interfere with your functioning can also be the trial and error period with medication, all right? The ups and the downs of trying to enhance the optimal medication to deal with that as well, right? You're not a broken individual. You have a chemical imbalance that needs a tool, but it's only an aid. Tr medication is only an aid. It is not the solution. Anxiety disorders, same thing, all right? Eating disorders, addictions. Now, if you are living with, to some degree with an addiction, that's probably one of the very few that until you put in concentrated effort 
to deal with the addiction, you're going to have to be very forgiving of yourself um, for the ways you make progress and lose progress. All right. Addiction is a major factor that interferes at so many levels um, that I would hope that you would make that a priority to get whatever care and treatment and support you need. Right? And many of those supports are free. All right. Ticks and Tourette syndrome. Autism. I don't see a lot of autism specifically, but I do see um, a fair amount of Asperger's. Asperger's is kind of a subtype. Um, schizophrenia. Now we're moving into some more seriously disruptive uh, comorbidities. Dementia. Social phobia. Personality disorders. All right. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. We're going to do a whole show, a whole podcast on OCD. Um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Now that sounds a lot the same. And sometimes it looks to some degree the same um, behaviorally, but it isn't. Okay, it comes from a different place. Avoidant personality disorder. Dependent personality disorder. Paranoid personality disorder. Social isolation. One of the, the difficulties with social isolation that compounds the problem in a kind of a unique way is the more socially isolated we are, the more we are just rolling around with our own thoughts, fears, beliefs. It's like we're in a loop. All right? And... We need, we are social beings as human beings. We need other people. We need stimulation. We need contact. And many of us right now are experiencing some very unusual, odd reactions to being isolated uh, for so long. In particular, if the isolation means that you are the only person in your environment. Find a way to reach out. Second best is better than none. Download Zoom. There's a whole Zoom thing, um, application, where you can meet. It's free. Uh, there's Skype. There's Duo. There's WhatsApp. There's FaceTime. Okay? Face-to-face. -face. Even if you can't be in the within the energy um, sphere of other people, is better than isolation. ADD and ADHD, attention deficit disorder, and attention, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Interestingly enough, I took a course through Harvard, and um, I think it was Beth Israel. They collaborate. Every year I go down to the States, to Boston, and I take a, um, a course um, in the summer. And I learned um, the presenter was a professor from Harvard, uh, John Rady, R-A-T-E-Y. And I began to wonder, am I imagining this? I had so many clients who had um, behaviors on the continuum of OCD 
they also seem to have behaviors on the continuum of, of attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I'm so glad I went to that training because he explained that there's a 20% correlation between OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and one of attention deficit disorder or attention de uh, deficit hyperactivity disorder. So respect what you're thinking and feeling. Let that be your baseline. Okay, nothing you read. If it doesn't resonate with you, then it isn't something to make necessarily a priority um, to deal with. Um, dementia and Alzheimer's. Right. Traumatic life events. And has tra have traumatic life events um, implicated your functioning? Have they affected your functioning and your thoughts and your mood and the things that make you feel safe and competent? Um, have they extended to the, the degree of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? All right. Lots of good information, lots of good resources available if, that, if you're one of the individuals that that's true for. Biological factors, so we go back to the genetics. Okay, now as part of the self-assessment, I want us to consider the next point. And we may fall in different camps, and that's okay if we do. There basically are two camps that people fall into. And I believe, from my experience, I haven't studied this, but I have observed it, um, they seem to come from a different place. So the comorbidities, the, the other mental health and physical health uh, realities, disorders or, or behaviors, seem to be lumped in one of two of these camps. One camp is, the stuff is my friend. Okay, the more I have of it, the closer it is, the better I feel. All right, it's, it's a, a reassurance. Not here, it's a reassurance. Kinesthetically, through your whole body, you have that soothing response. The more there is, the closer it is, and it doesn't matter what it is. Now remember, everything that you can imagine can and is hoarded. And if you are in that camp, then first step is acknowledge that that is your response. All right? The other camp is um, a sense of being overwhelmed. And generally, you only know that you're in this camp because in this camp, the stuff is not your friend, all right? There are, you, you see individual pieces that you go, oh, I'm glad I have that, that's useful. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm gonna get around to using that. Oh, I have, you know, five years supply of toilet paper. Um, so I'm safe, you, it, it, that can be reassuring, all right? However, m mostly you put blinders on. And the blinders, the apex of the blinder gets to be this big. And all you can see is one step ahead of you. 
one foot in front of the other out the door, one foot in front of the other back in. Quite often you're taking um, avoidance tactics um, to be not to be discovered. So when you leave, particularly if you're in an apartment building, you know, you're, you're listening and anybody in the hall, um, you open the door, but you can't get the door open the whole way. Um, and you're scooting out through the door quickly, close it behind you, so that if anybody happens to come out of their apartment and head down the hall, you're not going to be discovered, right? And generally what happens, um, the people that I find who are in that state, they can have other comorbidities as well, but their basic challenge, all right, is depression and anxiety. And quite often, they are very, I mean, not, ex yes, they can even be extremely, but healthily functional individuals. They go out to work every day or they go to volunteer work every day. They have uh, some kind of schedule, and, but they're telling themselves when they're outside. One clue when they're outside that this is their camp is when people say something to them a compliment, for instance, they say to themselves, their, their inside voice, okay, says, if you only knew the truth, if you only knew the truth, all right, and so if you, if that resonates with you, you're in camp too. The good news is, that's a good thing, because camp two is so much easier to deal with. All right, the first thing we have to do is we have to get the blinders off. Now, sometimes the blinders come off automatically because the mood shifts or a medication is particularly effective or something, some positive thing happens and you're just lifted a bit, okay? And so the blinders come off. You don't need to keep it, keep your... Because you can only afford to look, to deal with what you, you can only afford to look at what you can, you know, feel competent to deal with. No shame, no blame there. You're not, you're not, it's not some deficit. It's just a protective mechanism. You can only afford to, to look at what you really feel you stand some fair chance of dealing with. Otherwise, a human reaction, a self-protective reaction, is to put on blinders and just kind of feel deceive it. Or sometimes we do something else. Sometimes we do a little stick handling logic in our brain. We, we have reasons then, you know, and we apply reasons and logic to it. And but it's all self-protection, all right? It means you're overwhelmed. It means you, you've lost track of where to start, how to start. And it all feels to some degree like you can't do it. You can do it. If you can imagine what you want, you can do it. All right? So um, these people are doctors, lawyers, judges, teachers, nurses, accountants. They are, um, they make really good uh, contributions wherever they volunteer. They have missions. They have goals. They have a standard. And quite often, in, when they're outside, um, in the outside world, out of their environment, they take 
you know, some pride. They take some care with how they present themselves. All right. This is the easier camp um, to deal. Both camps can can be healed. This is the easier one. All right. So if you're nodding, bonus, bonus. All right. Um, all right. Now. So in that second camp, what has happened that has caused the buildup is that while the blinders were on, while you felt that sense of being so overwhelmed, you stopped processing the things of everyday life. Okay, and so much stuff comes into our everyday life unsolicited. You just keep track of the amount of paper that comes into our life unsolicited, it's surprising that more people are brought to a grinding halt because paper is very challenging. Paper almost seems like there's an obligation when you get a piece of paper. It could be useful. Maybe this information, I don't want to deal with it right now, so it becomes part of a pile. There are Logical good reasons why paper builds up. Should it build up? Should you give in to that? There are lots of strategies. We're going to have a whole podcast on dealing with stuff that comes into our environment unsolicited. Okay? Okay, so the basic question, let's go back. Sometimes you're going to hear me say, let's go back to the mattresses. I love the Godfather. Let's go back to the mattresses, the basics. Okay? And the basics are how well. Are you managing not just your physical health, but your mental health? Are you binge watching all of those horrible news forecasts on who's dying where? All right. To the point when you're overloaded. This week, my daughter sent me an email. She lives in Vancouver. Um, and she sent me an email. And she said, have you seen Anderson Cooper's um, coverage of the woman who lost her husband when he was supposed to live and she's it's just, like he loses it and of course i'm a big anderson cooper fan and so i thought i'd go and i'd just kind of drop in and you know i realized something that no matter who you are no matter what you know no matter what your training is there is there is a, a kind of a i think it might even be a natural curiosity just to be struck by the train wreck all right there's that overwhelming sense of whoa and it's almost like you're along for the ride but i also discovered that when i was watching it i was starting to become emotive and emotional and i realized as a as a therapist and as a counselor i'm not doing that person any good this does my becoming emotional and upset, feeling badly, feeling a part of this does zip for that person. If I truly feel compassion for that person, I should be asking myself, what can I actually do to help? Can I help that person or can I help other people in some way? All right. Um, because otherwise, could it just be emotional voyeurism? All right, and so I've, my daughter and I both independently have decided the moment that starts on television, I'm off. It's not that I'm not interested, but I will not disrespect them by being a voyeur on their tragedy. 
And when I start to feel overwhelmed, um, like, oh, you know, there's only so much of certain politicians that um, you can tolerate. Um, and so when, I, when it starts to get to me, first second it starts to get to me and, it, and take me to a negative place, I'm gone. There's, I, and if I'm reading the paper, um, I will scan the paper. And if there's something that is particularly evocative, when I'm confined, the best protection of my mental health is not to become more overwhelmed by things that I can't do anything about. All right. And I will not disrespect myself, my own mental health, or the person who legitimately suffered that tragedy by being an emotional voyeur. That's just not healthy. So trust yourself. Trust your own reactions and be guided by them. All right. To manage your own mental health, particularly if depression, anxiety, or any other disorders or illnesses are something that you're already dealing with. We are all in a compressed episode where we are likely to react larger, okay? And we don't want to have to turn our emotions off in order to deal with it. We want to be adults. We want to modulate them and manage them. All right. So how, are you, how well are you taking care of the balance of your physical health and mental health? A really important question to ask yourself and don't allow yourself to go there. Keep your antenna up. What would it take to overwhelm you? And if you're already in a state of partial overwhelmness with clutter, please respect yourself and value yourself enough not to add to it, not in one little bit. So we have about 15 minutes and we're, uh, these are, my nose is I'm sorry. Um, we're going to go through different thinking styles, and this also is going to be your homework, all right? I want you to watch out for these. One is all or nothing thinking. There's nothing, there are no gray zones, all right? It's right, it's wrong, it's black, it's white. There's only one right answer. There's only one standard that is good enough. The steps along the way don't count. Black and white, all or nothing thinking. You know that. You know when somebody's doing that, when they say, well, I didn't kill anybody, you know. So what was the alternative? All right. Or I didn't do some extreme uh, behavior. It's like it doesn't count at all. Yet, yeah, no, life happens in the middle. Life happens in those spots between absolute polar opposites. So watch when you're under pressure or you're feeling stressed or vulnerable that you don't resort to all or nothing, black and white, true and false thinking, okay? The second uh, thinking style I want you to keep an eye out for is overgeneralization. 
Now, overgeneralization means, and the way I hear it most is, yeah, no, I tried that once and it didn't work, so I'm not going to try it again. And you say, well, how long ago was that? Oh, well, it was like 25 years ago. But I learned that lesson. And you haven't changed in 25 years. Your circumstances haven't changed in 25 years. You haven't learned anything in 25 years. You haven't grown any, any way in 25 years. How are those two conditions? How are those two environments similar? All right. So it's generalizing from an inadequate minimal experience where you had a bad experience. Maybe it's safe. What does it take for you to be safe? To try more options, all right? To leave yourself open to the possibility that conditions, I might be different. Conditions might be different. I might have more skills. I might be more developed. I might be more ready to do a little part of it to try it. Do you need somebody to coach you? Do you need some? What do you need to have a, a broader risk management in trying options? All right. If because what you what we do every day, we go out and every day we come back at the end of our day, even if we're doing circles around the house, and we're different people. We know more. We, we've learned something, hopefully, during that day. We have changed as people infinitesimally. Well, infinite, all those sands make a beach. All right? All those little grains of sand over years make a beach. Enjoy the beach. Take a chance. Take a calculated chance. If somebody makes a suggestion, modulate it and try a piece of it. When you're safe, then try a little more. Try a little more, all right? Otherwise, you doom yourself to... Life isn't in boxes. Jumping to conclusions. Okay, where I see jumping to conclusions, I see this sort of as a protective mechanism, but it's not really a healthy, healthy one. So you observe somebody, you're saying something, and you're talking or you're doing something, and... You're reading the person. You're reading their reactions to you, okay? And, and you, you know, I know that person doesn't like me, and that person disapproved. Oh, they're they're on they're on board. Um, but I never stop and ask the person, "What what did you mean by that?" Um, you know, are you in agreement or not agreement? You decide ahead of time, preemptively, without ever checking with the person about the truth of your reading of their reaction. And oftentimes we do that when we need to protect ourselves. Okay, it's sort of like uh, an ounce of prevention, you know, that, but this is not healthy prevention. This is mind reading. Ask the person if their opinion is important enough, if their reaction is important enough to you, that you're going to actually observe it and integrate it into something about you, it's important enough to ask them the meaning of their reaction. At least give them the chance to tell you the truth. Then you know. Then you've got something concrete to work from. 
You don't have to be guided by people's reactions unless you consider your behavior yourself independently, authentically, inappropriate, and not in your best interests. Magnification and catastrophizing. Okay. Something happens and it's like, oh, it's bigger than, bigger than life. Um, you go to extremes with magnifying this and then, and then sometimes we use that heightened sense of alarm now to be, oh, and then this might happen and this might happen and that might happen. And before you know it, you've got a horror movie in your head, none of which has happened out of something that was legitimately this big. We're going to talk about um, the tendency to magnify and catastrophize and how that disables you, all right? Discounting the positive. Well, I see a lot of this with individuals for a while when I work with them. All right, don't do it. Every single thing you achieve is valuable and important. And the end product that you want is the cumulative effect of those. So discounting the positive would be, yeah, I know I cleaned that area, but look how much more there is. Okay, don't do that to yourself. That's why sometimes I really recommend with people that if they're working on an area, work strategically, all right? Work strategically. Start. There's no magic what corner you start in. Just If you're just getting started, though, don't pick a biggie unless it's a safety factor, okay? So, and keep going back to that area and keep making progress in that area. And what I want you to train yourself to do before you start beating yourself up and disabling yourself I want you to train yourself to go back and look at what the accomplishments have been. Where is the area that's clear? And try your level best to keep it clear. Because oftentimes that's going to be your touchstone for keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay? You, you have a concrete area that you can go back to. And, and if you are tempted or you slip and you go, yeah, but remember my voice. Don't do it. You're shooting yourself in the foot when you do that. All right? You're, you're removing part of the very foundation of the energy and the self-esteem and the self-worth that drives you. And it also can be a tool to procrastination. We're probably going to do three podcasts on procrastination. Procrastination, okay, is some is a behavior. It is a choice, believe it or not. Many people believe that it's just a matter of not doing something or avoiding something. And in some way, it's a deficit. No, procrastination is a behavior choice. And it is self-protective. It protects you against something else that is bigger and scarier than the term procrastinator or anything you say to yourself or anybody else says to you. Okay. Moral, re emotional reasoning. <clears throat> emotional reasoning happens when I 
I just don't feel like it. I just don't feel like it. Or I feel this, so it must be true. Take this one to the bank, folks. Okay. It is important for us to know our feelings, to respect our feelings, but also not be guided by our feelings. Right? Feelings aren't facts. Feelings are just our emotional response, our hormonal and chemical response within our body, sometimes that are, you know, unique to us. That's why they're important to know and acknowledge and respect. They're also important. They can be important if they're healthy feelings. Um, they're not negative feelings. They also are a piece of decision-making. So when we feel something, we might want to make a decision about something. We should engage both sides of our brain. All right. We should go to our strategic part of our brain and challenge it. Yeah, but what, what, how true is this? And we, if necessary, if people send me emails saying it would be helpful to have a little bit of a, of a coaching session on how to do that, I'm happy to do that. Um, but then we, that logical part of our brain, and then we need to kind of um, overlay our feeling and somehow come to a resolution that this will be our first step. We don't have to achieve anything in one step, all right? So un until we can process it slightly differently and feel safer with it, then we will just take baby steps using the logical part of our brain and the feeling part of our brain. Moral reasoning. You hear a lot of shoulds with moral reasoning. Those are the shoulds. And I say, should is a shovel. So if you're not in a deep enough hole right now, take that shovel and dig yourself in a bit deeper. Because should is a rule. It never accomplished anything, but it sure defeated a lot of people. There's no should. <clears throat> There's can. What do I need to do? And do I have the tools and resources to do it? And if I don't, what do I need to gather to myself in tools and resources, knowledge perhaps, in order to do this thing? Double standard. Double standard is a way to avoid taking responsibility. So there are special rules apply for me. So you need to do that, but I don't need to do that. And we can work that in, in reverse as well. It's okay. I would forgive you. If I was your best friend, I'd tell you one thing. But if anybody asked me to be my own best friend and tell myself something, no, I'm expected to perform to a higher standard. Those are, go back to those family beliefs and values, what you were taught, and challenge them. How appropriate is that? to this situation and to you and how much does that meet your needs we're going to do a whole podcast on needs wants wishes all right and how to look for our needs identify our needs um, because that's why we were given life we were given our uniqueness because we have needs legitimate needs that we're in 
we should be making a priority to have met. Sometimes when we, often when we don't get our needs met, we stop taking care of ourselves in other ways that can result in clutter, even to the point of hoarding. Labeling. Labeling is like handles that you try to apply to yourself or others. Okay, and all that does is help you move and put that situation, that person, yourself in a box. We didn't, we were not born with handles. We were born with legs and arms. Sometimes if we can manage the use of acknowledging a label, but don't personalize it. Yes, I hoard. Does that make me a hoarder? No, I am more than the hoard. If someone uses the term hoarder, it's just a short form. It's not your identity. Okay? If if you have OCD or OCPD or depression, you're not a you're not just a depressed individual. So watch out for labels if you use them. Never ever allow yourself to be defined by them. All right? They represent Perhaps one of the vulnerabilities that you need to look out for, know more about, gather more tools and resources and skills to deal with. Okay? Labels are something that you can peel right off. Never, ever apply them to yourself or other people. Underestimating oneself. Sometimes we defeat ourselves. You know, we, we're going to wind up on this one and the next one. Um, so sometimes we defeat ourselves. We're just so worn out. We're just so discouraged that we underestimate what we can do, what we can ex ask others to do that meets our needs. And we generally leave ourselves in a void or we're in a void before it happens, before we start underestimating what we can do. One way to deal with this, okay, there, there are a number of ways to deal with this, but one simple way to deal with it is to consider that every day is a new start. You can't change the past. You can't change what you did yesterday. Sometimes when I have a real screw-up of a day before in some way, like it's just like, oh, rather not remember that. I uh, miss the mark in so many ways. I say to myself, tomorrow's a new day. When I wake up in the morning, I say, I can't change what was, but it doesn't matter how many times I get knocked down. It only matters if I don't get back up. And I don't have to be a hero. Today, I may only get up in a little way if that's really, truly all I can manage. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that tomorrow has to be a little day. Every day is a fresh start. It's a really good thing at night, okay? Shower and wash the day off. Take a shower, watch all the things go down the drain and start the next day fresh. It's a visual. It's not because you need to shower every day. It's a visual. It's a way if you, if you blame yourself or you hold yourself to very high standards, you criticize yourself, have a shower at night, wash it off, Tomorrow's a new day, Scarlet. Okay? Last one. <clears throat> Overestimating oneself. 
there are a few situations where you really want to keep your eye on this one. Because if you overestimate, generally you set yourself up for disappointment and failure. What, where, where I see a lot of this is people looking at a job to be done and they go, oh, that's going to take like half an hour. When really and truly, anybody who was looking at it more objectively, who understood what that job was better, didn't have such a vested wish in getting it done, all right, would look at it and say, hmm, pretty much a half day. So when you overestimate your ability to do something, <clears throat> because you underestimate either your energy, that's where I say, check yourself. How much fuel do you have in the tank that day? And if you're just getting started, get a timer out and promise yourself 15 minutes. And when the ding goes off, it's okay to stop. Now, if you're on a roll and you're just getting started, do one more 15 minutes. Set the timer. Here's the deal, though. If you set that timer again for that second 15 minutes, you have to finish it. The reason you have to finish it, there's no should, but you have to finish it for your own self-interest, is this is the beginning of self-regulation. Later on, you'll be able to do, in half-hour chunks, a number of those a day, if you have the fuel in the tank. But it's part of respecting yourself, too. You don't promise three hours fuel when you're feeling like you have half an hour. The other thing that's really important, we're going to wind up on this, is that if you fall into the trap of being on a roll and you keep going and you're just starting, well, anytime really, no matter where you are in, in the continuum of maintenance, you're not going to come back to it. If your recollection of that, your experience of that was, couldn't do that again. All right, it's going to preempt your ability to get started. Slow and steady wins the race. We're going to finish on this note because this is true. It really, truly is the 15, somewhere between 15 minutes and half an hour a day. But don't do half an hour when you're starting. At 15 minutes and half an hour a day, every day. That is going to get you to where you want to be, and it's going to keep you to where you want to be. But in the meantime, no shame, no blame, no bullying, no criticizing. Respecting yourself for how much fuel you have in the tank and applying the fuel to your three goals. What are they? Joy, fun, and play every single day, or your fuel tank is going to empty pretty quickly. You're going to be going on fumes. Second, Remind yourself and find ways to, in, to engage being a learning, developing human being. All right? What do you want to know more about? What do you want to do better at? What do you want to experience more? And then the plain old boring stuff of work. A legitimate self-management work period. Those three pieces every day 
are a winning recipe. One gives you, you energy. The other gives you meaning. We all want meaning. We all want a purpose. And the third gives you results. So I hope to see everybody here, including our people from San Francisco and um, Reno, Nevada and uh, Cuesta, New Mexico and wherever else people come to us from. Uh, I hope to see you next week. We're going to be car carrying on with characteristics of hoarding, the process of hoarding, beliefs about possessions. Okay, that's going to be our agenda for uh, next week and send me your questions in emails i'll print them off and for the person who sent me the question what are the 10 steps to success you're assuming there are 10 steps okay stay tuned this is not a linear process this is a self journey a self-discovery starting with self-respect take care everybody see you next week <laughs>